Hey guys, it's Chase with csjoseph.life doing another episode for season 17. This is season 17, episode 12, or how do the four sides of the mind manifest in children? And uh, thank you for coming. Please be advised that uh, as we have been doing so with previous uh, season 17 episodes, we have been uh, utilizing season 17 as our Patreon gold tier live lectures uh, every month. But uh, we're getting very close to the end of season 17 now, so we may be uh, offering a different uh, season for the live lectures. Uh, be advised that given that this is a live lecture, it will be made available to the public uh, basically as soon as this uh, private live stream has been completed. But the difference is, is that at the end of this uh, stream, we're going to be having a Q&A uh, session about 15 minutes or so, uh, focusing on the specific content uh, presented within this lecture. Uh, so yeah, uh, with that being said, uh, thank you all for coming. We got Abby Lynn, 3X Systematic, IA, Marvel, Pug Life, Jacob Person, Helen Shang, Jalen uh, joining us this evening, and there are a few other people also uh, bouncing in as we are moving forward uh, for this particular presentation. Also, uh, I will be doing something that I haven't done before. Actually, that's not true. I have done it before one other time uh, in uh, season 17. And it's the only other time that I have done this so far uh, with any of the content that I have offered. Um, which, by the way, guys, can you guys like hear me? Uh, just want to make sure that you guys can like actually hear me and the sounds coming in through. If we're having sound issues, let me know. Uh, but anyway... Um, so if you guys remember earlier in, uh, what's up, Cayman? <laughs> if you guys uh, remember earlier within season 17, uh, we had uh, a particular situation where I was presenting a, a different theory or a different argument, uh, you know, about gender, basically, uh, you know, versus like what I believe it is versus what my mentors believe. Um, and uh, we were talking about how, you know, the anima and animus has like an opposing gender, basically. Um, so like, for example, your subconscious would be the opposite gender to what you are, right? And then there is uh, the other theory, the other competing theory, which is no, each of the individual types within the mind have their own established gender, which would make the traditional anima animus uh, theory basically null and void. And that's, uh, so I am more a part of the new line of thinking, whereas my mentors are actually on the older line of thinking. They actually agree that the anima animus is what it is, uh, as a, a, according to inverse theory, that um, it is quite frankly just, hey, you know, it's the opposite gender of what your ego is. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think uh, each of the individual personality types actually have their own internal gender uh, as I presented in the season 17 episode talking about the subconscious where we talk about gender and even uh, a little bit we discuss transgenderism. Well that discussion is somewhat relevant today when we're going to be talking about how the four sides of the mind manifest in children and uh, which is a very um, um, which is a very um, important thing. Um, uh, Elliot Woodhead just joined in, um, 
thank you for coming. Um, although I don't believe Hitler was an INFP, but thank you for your statement, good sir. Um, but um, uh, I was more hinting at John Locke, but uh, that's, a, that's another discussion for another day. Uh, anyway, um, sorry for the tangent, but not sorry, actually, because I'm tangential. Um, but uh, moving forward with this, when it comes to uh, my mentor, there's yet another competing theory, and that basically has a lot to do with child development. And this is one area that him and I absolutely vehemently disagree on, um, or at least we have vehemently disagreed on. Uh, it's funny because the last uh, time I was on the phone with him and the last time we had a discussion at all, um, which was... I think we're coming up on maybe a year now since the since I had that uh, you know talk with him. Uh, quite frankly, we're getting closer and closer to the point where it's like, well, you know, maybe he is right. Uh, so I, I keep going back and forth with it, but right now I'm kind of more in line with his current take of uh, how children are developing versus my original take. So I'm going to be presenting that. I'm going to be presenting both of those theories uh, tonight and letting you, the audience, uh, chime in through the comment section uh, to discuss uh, how the four sides of the mind manifest in children as a result. So that'll be pretty interesting. So you get to see both competing theories. I'm going to say where I used to be and where I currently stand on it. And uh, that way, um, you know, you all have an opportunity uh, to... Uh, you know, make your own mind, I guess, on this particular thing. So whenever, like, I present content to the audience, I'm just like, okay, yeah, you know, this this is the facts, right? But every now and then there's something where it's like, okay, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, here's what I think it is, but I don't know. And it's happened a few times, so this is probably like the third or fourth time I've ever done this. So uh, we're going to, but we're going to pay a little bit of special attention to it. Now, if you folks remember... Uh, when we're talking about children, uh, we talk about how, you know, a my, my initial theory was like, okay, hey, you know, you have a quadra, here's what your quadra is, etc. And then, uh, you know, uh, and then over time, you have an opportunity to, as you reach adolescence, you basically become, you know, your, you know, your ego, basically, and ego in adolescence is how your ego forms, essentially, as a child. Well, my mentor staunchly disagrees with this and after giving it some thought and also having many discussions about it with railgun i actually now maintain that his approach is probably the more it probably is far more accurate than uh, my initial uh take on it and a lot of it has to do with inverse theory a lot of it also has to do with uh we uh, you know, when we look at cognitive focus, when we look at uh, human nurture and how human nurture impacts people, it changes things a lot. And it can actually really shift the data around. And as much anecdotal evidence as I could offer to the contrary, I have just as much anecdotal evidence that actually supports his theory. So I don't really know for sure. Uh, so I'm going to present both theories this evening. And we're going to we're going to talk about both theories. And then after we talk about both theories, we're going to be talking about, um, uh, we're also going to be talking about um, um, stages of life, life stages and how they impact uh, human, human nurture. So I'm actually going to prep a new whiteboard for that right now. Uh, so let me get that written out here. 
season 17, uh, episode 12, um, and then uh, let's see here, uh, four sides and children. And make sure we have a couple of things here to make sure that we don't get off track. The competing theories I'm going to be listing. And then uh, I'm going to share my screen with you guys so you can actually see the whiteboard here. There we go. And there's my dog uh, demanding immediate attention. That's what he loves to do uh, for some reason. Uh, so we got, we got competing theories. Um, we're going to be looking at um, uh, life stages. Oops, it helps if I actually like spell that correctly. Life stages. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, cognitive focus. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, human uh, human nurture, basically. So these are kind of the main four areas for this particular lecture that we're going to be discussing. Um, but uh, let's begin with the uh, first of the two theories. So the initial theory. Um, so the initial theory, we'll use blue for this one. Um, you know, we have four sides of the mind. But quite frankly, we're just going to say like a quadra. Okay, so we have the quadra, and then uh, we'll have uh, we'll have a crusader. We'll have a wayfarer. We'll have a templar, and then we have um, uh, the philosopher. Now, and this is the this is the first theory of uh, child development. The first theory of child development. And this is the current theory that uh, I used to have, but I, I'm actually getting away from this. Um, so so uh, basically the theory goes is that a child would end up picking one of these. So let's just use an example. Let's say, let's say, um, let's say an ESFJ child, we'll just say. So he starts off as a crusader and he's an ESFJ, you know, ESFJ. But based on, you know, their development, you know, uh, the four sides, uh, you know, of the minds, you know, obviously with an ESFJ, you have ESFJ, and then you have INTP, and then you have above that, you have uh, ISFP, and then below that, you have uh, ENTJ as the four sides of this ESFJ person. However, uh, within the same quadra, you have ESFJ, you have ENTP, and then you have ISFJ, and then you have um, uh, INTP. Now, this is where things get this is where things get interesting. Um, so, according to my uh, original theory in terms of child development, is that and this is this was something that I presented a long time ago on like various Q and A sessions, etc. But when this happened is that it's like, okay, you have like an ESFJ child, you know, you type them with a type grid. Uh, and then you notice that, you know, over time, they, they just kind of, they just kind of adjust, they just kind of change, you know, uh, and it's like, okay, well, I type my kid this and I type my kid that. Um, but you know, like my son, for example, I initially typed him as like an ISTP. I was, at least I got him in the right quadra. And then I moved over to ESTP and then I ended up uh, moving on to uh, like INFJ, for example. So we'll put my son right here. And at first I did uh, ISTP and then I did ESTP 
and then I realized he was actually an INFJ. But I didn't realize he was actually an INFJ until he was about eight years old. Um, ISTP, that was basically one to two years old. ESTP, I maintained from like three to three to like five, basically. And then INFJ, uh, you know, from six to, to eight years old, basically. Uh, was the general ways that I, you know, observing his growth as a father to a son, you know, using the type grid, that's basically the results that I came up with, you know, when I went through it. Now, granted, I maintain that, you know, the initial ISTP typing was grossly inaccurate. And, you know, as a baby, like, he didn't want to sleep with anyone. He wanted to be completely by himself at all times. He didn't want to, uh, like, his mother be like, oh, you know, come sleep with us in the bed. And my, my, my infant son was like, no, no, leave me alone. I don't want to do that. And he wasn't happy until he was just in his own crib, in his own place, doing his own thing. Happy, happy, joy, joy. That's all I want. Well, let's look at my daughter. Things get a little bit interesting here. So my daughter, when I was typing her, I didn't really type her until about six months, so about 0.5 year. I typed her ISTJ. And I maintained that typing of ISTJ all the way until she turned actually five years. And it's like, yeah, no, she's definitely ENTP. But I actually noticed a change. I noticed a change, you know, in that. It's like she she definitely adjusted herself appropriately. You know, and, and it was it was based on, you know, this information and also doing the same kind of type grid analysis with other babies and other children that I've encountered over, I don't know, the last six years, seven years or so, however long I've actually had the type grid uh, to utilize with typing children. And uh, it was it was basic, but but, you know, with my son and my daughter and all this information, all this data that I'd collected, it uh, it. It bothered me. It bothered me enough. It bothered me enough that I decided to actually like bring it up to my mentor, my last phone call with him, which was like a year ago ish, maybe eight or nine months ago, and uh, we just had this like we had this huge argument. And I'm like, you know, I was trying to show him, you know, here's my initial theory, and I explained to him, you know, okay, so if this person is like an ESFJ, for example, they're within that quadra. But depending on their human nurture, depending on their cognitive focus, depending on what impacts them as a child, you know, for example, uh, I'll use blue ink uh, to use here, you know, they could be an ESFJ, but what happens if they go full on INTP or if they go full on ENTP as a result of the impacts of human nature? And I was explaining to my mentors like, okay, well, when this happens, you know, we have, uh, uh, let's say, uh, you know, this ESFJ, you know, they're in a family, but it's a family full of other crusaders. And this ESFJ is not really able within their ego to be a crusader. So they'll cognitive transition to kind of compensate. But then again, there could be like a human nurtural issue. Um, like for example, sexual abuse or physical abuse or some kind of abuse, negative abuse that happens to the child. And at that point, they do what we call, and I've called this uh, something before, we call it quadra shifting.
quadrashift. And the child would essentially quadrashift and their ego would change. And this is before adolescence. They would change to one of the other uh, types within their quadra, basically quadrashift. And then that basically means their four sides of the mind right here would be different. They'd be completely different. They would change. And if he quadra shifted from ESFJ to like an ENTP in that moment, uh, then he would have the four sides of the mind for the ENTP within their quadra for child development. And then as a result of that, uh, you know, they, you know, the, they would continue on until they had another event of some kind that when they hit adolescence, boom, that's the cutoff. And that's when, um, that's when, you know, that, that's your type, that's your ego. It is what it is. Well, when I explained this to my mentor, he vehemently disagreed with all of that except for one point. And the one point that we do agree on uh, is that when adolescence hits, boom, that's their ego. And there is no changing. There is no adjusting. It is what it is. That's it. However, it goes a little bit deeper than that. He did agree with me, though, that, you know, because he, he actually typed my son an ISTP at first ish well actually no my other mentor typed my son as an istp my other my, the mentor that i've been talking about my infj mentor my estp mentor typed him as an istp probably because my estp mentor identified with my son and my estp mentor thinks he's an istp so he probably told me that his, my son was an istp like him even though he's technically an estp which is interesting but his infj son uh, typed my son uh, when he met my son at about three years old and said that my son was an ESTP, actually. I'm like, okay, that's fair. But the bottom line is, is that my son's an INFJ now. Well, wait a minute, how could that be? And this is where my debate with my mentor actually started. And this debate lasted like, you know, for probably a good two and a half hours on, on the phone going all over this. But my mentor decided to, it was, you know, to present his theory of child development, um, which interestingly enough, actually fits with all of my collected data on my children as well. And my uh, mentor, uh, my INFJ mentor is like, yeah, quadra shifting is bogus. He actually maintains that quadra shifting is not even a thing. I mean, I mean, quadra shifting could technically, maybe theoretically happen, with an insane human nurture problem uh, to a child before adolescence. But even then, it's not likely because he maintains that what their ego is, is their ego. And they're just going to go to one of the other four sides of the mind, likely the superego. And the superego will become the new ego. And then the old ego would become the superego that it was before. And it would take on all those demonic or angelic traits uh, in that moment. So quite frankly, my mentor is basically saying, hey, quadra shifting is absolute bogus. Stop telling people about it. I'm like, okay, that's fair. We can, uh, we can definitely, we can definitely uh, uh, do that and, and uh, consider that. But I wanted to know why. Obviously, you know, TI parents like, okay, well, why? Why should I think this? Hi. She has a hurt paw. Oh, and the dog has a hurt paw. Oh. You gotta fix it. He's got a sticker in it or something. His whole skin on his paw. The Ooh, his skin. Ripped off. Oh, it's because he, my puppy decided to run three miles today. That was cool. Um, but uh, he's uh, 
Got a little foot injury, poor guy. But anyway, uh, so so yeah, as a result of this discussion, I actually now maintain that uh, you know quadra shifting is just completely wrong. And I know that I've presented uh, this theory to you you all previously uh, in question and answer sessions, and even because I absolutely believed it was true. But after having this discussion, no. No, I, I, it's just not. It's just not true. I don't think it's true. Uh, I don't believe this is how uh, children uh, develop anymore. And having that, that very long debate with my INFJ um, uh, mentor, who also reminded me of you know the keep it simple, stupid uh, method in the process, he presented something far more practical, and it matches all the data that I collected on my son and daughter, and it also matches all of the data that I've collected with other children uh, that I've worked with in the past and their parents, etc. So as a result, I have no choice but to agree with him. And so this is where I'm going to be apologizing to the audience and saying, sorry for teaching you something inaccurate. Let me actually teach you the accurate thing now. So um, so we'll, uh, we'll definitely do that now. Um, so let's talk about my mentor's theory as I erase all this stuff here that we don't need on the whiteboard. And uh, we'll get down. Uh, we'll get down to business here. As soon as uh, I don't know why, like this, this whiteboard program takes a lot of system resources on this computer for some reason. I don't know why. So awesome. We're gonna keep the data for my children on the board here because that's gonna be really important when presenting his theory. Okay, so we're going to take. Uh, we're just gonna use my son as an example. Um, so, so, uh, let's use black for this. Okay. So we're going to do four sides of the mind again. So my side was initially typed as like an ESTP. So we're going to do an ESTP uh, stack here, INFJ, ESTP, INFJ, and then ISTJ and then ENFP. Okay. And then we all know the functions within those S E T I F E N I S I T E F I N E, etc. And then obviously the rest of them here. So uh, let's just get those filled out real quick so we can move through this without wasting anyone's time. So this is the initial, you know, four sides of the mind function stack according to my mentor's initial typing of my ESTP son. And uh, this is where it came out. And apparently my dog decided to bring in his little uh, tire. He, he has a tire chew toy and it's awesome. He loves playing with it. Cool. Uh, so these, uh, so yeah, so yeah. So at first he's like, okay, you know, son's an ESTP. You know, but then my uh, my mentor is like, okay, yeah, I remember typing your son in ESTP, but he's not an ESTP. He tells me, and I didn't even I didn't even really tell him very much about what type I maintained my son really is. I'm like, okay, yeah, well, how do you know that? How do you know he's on ESTP? You initially typed him as an ESTP. He says, well, yeah, because according to my mentor, children present as a different type than the type that they actually are. Why? Well, here's an example. As a child, 
and actually many people that I've interviewed and worked with have even admitted this to me, but as children, people, when they see adults, children just kind of assume that adults have their shit together. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how children just think like adults are just happening people and you know, they have everything figured out and like the world is a lot better than, uh, than, you know, the child actually thinks it is. And, you know, they kind of just have this point of view where it's like, okay, well, you know, if something bad happens, that's just this time. It's not necessarily the world at large. Right. But then you actually become an adult and you realize things are just actually really that bad, you know, uh, and you're fully confronted with just how bad the world is and how reality really is in that situation. But as a child, you think and reason like a child. And then as a child, you end up making assumptions like, yeah, uh, you know, no adult could potentially do me any harm. It's just a little kid, you know, as like a three or four year old, right? So the thing is, is that children, when you're typing children, they don't present uh, as the type that you would type them at if you use the type grid. So there's actually an additional step that you have to follow when typing a child using the type grid. The reason why is because if you type a child with the type grid, the most, the one thing that you can know for a fact is that according to my mentor, you can identify, guess what? You can identify their quadra. So my son, you know, being ESTP, typed initially, he presented as an ESTP, we know he is definitely a Templar type. We know for sure he's a Templar type. But the thing is, is that according to my mentor and his theory is that like the, the thing is, is that Chase, you got to understand children, they present as their subconscious children naturally, regardless of any influence from human nurture, etc. present as their subconscious because children are trying to already be aspirational. It is the default mental state that children have is that they're already exploring their inferior function as quickly as possible to try to aspire. And this is why we have people like Taylor Swift who are very subconscious focused because she as a child was rewarded as a child for that subconscious aspirational exploration while not all children don't have that. So for example, Taylor Swift's family went out of their way to support Taylor's efforts and anything she did when it came to her subconscious development, which led to her being a famous singer. This includes like going out to Nashville and getting her started and uh, doing all the shows, doing everything, even when she was just a kid and much less a teenager, etc. But she started like as like seven or eight years old, right? And the parents is extremely supportive of the subconscious development of Taylor Swift, for example. This is why she's very subconscious focused she comes off very foolish at times because she hasn't really developed her shadow. So she lacks wisdom and she has lots of ha happiness and she actually has, you know, humility with her, um, with her uh, subconscious uh, focus and her subconscious development, but she lacks wisdom entirely for the most part, at least externally people would see because they see her making foolish act after foolish act. And it comes out in her music consistently. Uh, she's making a, a new song about every new guy she's with and every new breakup she has, etc. for example. Because she just hasn't developed the mental tools that the shadow or the unconscious 
would provide somebody because she's been so subconscious focused her whole life as an ESFP that she hasn't been able to develop those additional mental skills. Most people end up having high amounts of conflict within their families. The majority of us out there have conflict in our families. And when conflict is present, when there's more conflict present and less support for the subconscious, conflict innately makes people shadow focused, right? So they aren't as happy of people, but they're a lot wiser. So it's kind of a trade-off, right? Well, my mentor's point is that, you know, when you're looking at, you know, children and their their development, it's that they present by default. They present as their subconscious, basically. So because he typed, you know, and uh, my son as an ESTP, reality of the situation is, is that he is actually an INFJ because the child is presenting as his subconscious and he's actually truly an INFJ. And it's nice to know that my son right now, he actually is predominantly ESTP focused. Like he has been ESTP focused the whole time. And he has gotten older, he's eight years old, he's about to turn nine. And then uh, he's pretty, pretty, pretty good in his INFJ-ness for sure super affiliative and the like, but he wasn't always that way. He was he was mostly focused on being pragmatic. But then that subconscious pragmatism, you know, parenting getting in the way, and like, hey, you're taking that pragmatism a little too far. You shouldn't sock your sister with your fist to get what you want, you know, and uh, which, which he did, etc. So he, he presented as an ESTP and then typing him as the type grid, you know, he's actually really an INFJ. So when you're typing children, the point is, is that you have to do another step. You can follow the type grid for 100% accurate result, but you have to verify as to whether or not they're presenting as their subconscious. And always make sure that you have that thing in the back of your head that they might actually be their subconscious is their actual true ego and not the other way around. Now... My mentor and I went a little bit more and it's like, okay, well, if this is the case, does that mean, well, what about what happens when, you know, a child gets to adolescence, right? Uh, you know, does it change? Can, can, can your son, can my son go back and forth between ESTP and INFJ up until the point he reaches adolescence and it's solidified? My mentor is like, I mean, yeah, technically, if there's some major trauma, sure, but that major trauma is probably going to, you know, send someone in their ego more towards their superego and not necessarily towards their subconscious because a person's happiness is attached to the subconscious versus, you know, a person's, you know, wisdom or maturity is more attached to their unconscious, aka their shadow. Really, they're just going to end up going to the superfluous ego and those are going to switch during those, tra uh, those traumatic times. And then you have to retype them after that huge, hugely traumatic event. Um, and that's, and, and I mean, when, when I say hugely traumatic, I mean like, like brain damage, that level of trauma. Okay. Like physical bodily trauma, you know, as a result, not necessarily psychological trauma. So I'm like, okay, yeah, that, that would, that would make sense. But then the, the conversation shifted over to my daughter and, uh, which she presented as an ISTJ, definitely presented as an ISTJ. And, uh, you know, she's, she's still five and she's gonna be turning six very soon, just around the corner, turning six. And, uh, and she's definitely an ENFP. And it was so interesting because after, after I got married to Railgun and, and Railgun met my daughter, uh, she's like, yeah, that's an ENFP. And, and just watching my daughter try to like, 
you know, play the game of perceptions because, you know, in the absence of communication or explanation, perceptions become reality and try to like marionette my wife around and my ESTP wife who has ENFP super ego is like, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, if, if you want to find like the antidote to any person's type, put their super ego in play with someone else's ego and they're basically going to get completely and totally owned in that situation because an ESTP is like charlatan repellent when it comes to ENFPs. My daughter was behaving like a charlatan and uh, my wife exposed her for that and uh, well, uh, my daughter uh, suffered the consequences as a result of her charlatanry being exposed suddenly. Um, but she also presented as an ISTJ and is actually an ENFP. So, so here's the thing. In my personal experience, a child from like one to four, one to five, and this is, this is not just my children, this is other people's children that I've helped psychoanalyze. Uh, I, I mean, I started uh, working with parents and their children probably about, gosh, <coughs> yeah, in 2012. Yeah, in 2012 is when I started. I started doing that, and and since then, really, really, really young children from infancy till about four, four and a half ish, they usually present first as their subconscious. After about five, uh, five to seven, their ego is pretty detectable through the type grid, but you still have to like. Um, you still have to verify just in case to make sure that they're still not presenting the subconscious. Because like I said, someone like Taylor Swift, she would still present you know, as her subconscious potentially even much later. And then when they're in their tweens, which is before they become teens, it's like, so like 10 to, 10 to 13 in that range, they're pretty solid, I'd say, with the ego and what, 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 how they present on the type grid is literally, you know, their type. And then once they hit teen, teenage years, I mean, it's, it's done. As soon as adolescence comes in, I mean, boom, that's their ego. It is what it is. Get over it. Move on with your life, etc. So anyway... I maintain uh, that my mentor's approach to child development uh, is actually, this is, this is the accurate thing, and the quadra shift is not accurate. Um, he said, yeah, I mean, I can see how it work in theory, and it fits all your data, but it's, it's just inaccurate. And he presented a few other children that you know, he had worked with and that, it, that he had known and that I had known, especially within his own family, because he talked to me about his little sister, because I actually helped raise his little sister for about eight months or six to eight months and she's an ISTP and he talked about how she actually presented as an ENFJ and I actually remember some of those times because uh, I worked with her when she was just going into elementary like in kindergarten and whatnot and uh, when I was uh, uh, when I was with their family for a little bit when I was homeless and uh, it's like okay that that makes a lot of sense um, and uh, yeah, she did definitely present as an ENFJ uh, when when applying, you know, typing through the type grid, and then but she's actually an ISTP, so there's just another example. So we actually went through all of the the young people that we that we knew mutually in our life and made those comparisons, and sure enough, you know, quadra shift theory didn't actually it did not actually maintain uh, any weight whatsoever, whereas his approach did every single time. So when you're typing children, just be aware of this. Um, and uh, it's, you know, 
Well, uh, Sarah, story. Luckily, we live in twenty uh, twenty, and it's likely that there may be that people in general may have video footage of them behaving as children, and uh, you could possibly review that footage and see how it was. You know, if you can dare doing it, I can't do it. I can't see video footage of myself as a child because there's so many home movies that my family created and they would all just trigger me to like all the times that I was sexually abused as a child because there's so many home movies that my grandmother shot that took place like literally moments before I was like molested, you know, essentially uh, by other family members. And uh, that was like, it was, it's, it was so painful. I actually had to like, talk to my mom about that and have her just remove all of those uh family home movies and and destroy them basically uh for my sake which i really appreciated thank you go go isfj mother you know rising the occasion and uh taking care of all of that by the way um i know i've been very critical of my mother in the past but honestly the amount of conflict that my mother and i have had mutually with each other over the years has actually contributed to a lot more personal growth for the both of us so at the end of the day we just look at each other and we're just like yeah you were a hard time or yeah you know there's this but we really benefited from it because it made us a lot wiser so we're just kind of like eh, water under the bridge just move on you know what i'm saying so but anyway uh the bottom line is is that you know and if you guys want to learn more about like my my story, you can watch uh, the so the season twenty one episode about ENTPs, how to social engineer ENTPs, because I would actually uh, talk about uh, my sexual abuse as a child and how I was being social engineered by um, by an ESTP and also being socially engineered by an ISFP, my bronze pair, for example. And the ISFP was the the worst of the social engineering, um, and uh, based on that. Uh, you know, what I had to deal with, you know, um, growing up, etc. So I actually talk about it like at length in that lecture, if you guys want to find out more about how that works, but, uh, you know, hashtag ENTP Stockholm syndrome, right? But, uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, the bottom line is, I apologize for presenting the incorrect theory of quadra shifting. It is incorrect. Uh, my mentor debunked it. I stand corrected. This is not accurate this is the accurate way this is the accurate way so please uh please consider that um and recognize that when you're typing your children they're they're the younger they are the more likely they are to present as their subconscious just that's that's the standard the younger the child the more likely they are to present as their subconscious the older the child the more likely they are to present as their ego so and uh, this is, uh, um, so yeah, uh, and uh, so this is like the first uh, part of the lecture because it's really important to at least discuss, you know, how to, uh, how to type children appropriately because a lot of people ask me and, you know, this is actually kind of the method that you follow and uh, I'm very thankful for uh, my mentor correcting me um, since I've been able to share it with all of you folks. So, <sighs> And, uh, you know, I, I get to tell you all on YouTube and he gets to continue to, um, I don't know, hopefully completely kick ass on Lake of Legends as a, uh, as a challenger, um, as he is, uh, one of the best attack damage carries in the world. <laughs> so, um, probably it's pretty cool what he's able to do with the certain characters, especially with Caitlyn or Jinx. It's just unbelievable. 
anyway, so that's uh, that's the competing theories uh, portion of this lecture. Let's move on to probably something very interesting. Um, let's talk about life stages. Um, so life stages, very, very, very important, okay, and how the four sides of the mind uh, handle that. So because we know, um, because we know now how to properly type children on the type grid, uh, we're able to look at life stages. And we have birth and death, obviously. And uh, the thing is, is that according to what we now know is the correct way to type children, we now know that uh, based on, uh, logically speaking, based on the first part of this lecture, we can deduce that when a child is born, their ego is literally their ego. It's their ego, it's their ego, and it's not going to change, barring severe head trauma causing their superego to switch their ego, etc. Even that, though, is kind of a theory, by the way. That's, that's still theoretical, but we do have some evidence that correlates to that. Just recognize that correlation is not causation. We don't know for sure. So I want to put an asterisk on that. Okay. So, huh? I have a story. You have a story? Yeah, it's kind of hard because um, I acted a lot like an ENFP as a baby. and As a baby? Yeah. In your superego? Uh-huh. And my dad would constantly catch me doing extremely manipulative things to my brother when I didn't get what I... When I didn't, when you didn't get what you wanted? When I didn't get my way, I would cry like he hit me. Oh. And but around adults, I would act like an angel. And I was like this, the fakest baby ever. The fakest baby yes, ever? Yes, I really Like our dog. Like how fake our dog yes. is. Yes. <laughs> like I was so insincere. I was so good at manipulating. I was so good at lying. I was like a straight up super ego baby. Yeah, straight up super ego baby. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, so uh, I, I, I do enjoy it. Real guns, little little snippets in there. It's, it's always nice to get a, another TI parent perspective, but like you know, when you're SE hero, it's different. So, um, but uh, but yeah, like your ego is your ego is your ego. When you're born, that's your ego. Yeah, you may present your subconscious, but your ego is your ego. Now, life stages. There's a lot of things that come into play that we need to be aware of. So let's let's put them in here. So we have midlife crisis okay this is kind of a default thing we'll talk about why and then we have a three-quarter life crisis um this is also a thing that happens and then we have guess what a lot of people don't really think this is a thing but it is a thing it's quarter life crisis so these different uh, crises uh, come into um, yeah, new movie titles, Super Eco Baby. Thanks, Robert oh, yeah. Potts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, okay. So a quarter-life crisis. Now, why, why are these things happening? Well, I'm going to put a little note here. We're going to talk about uh, this rite of passage. Um, rite of passage. And this is basically, uh, this is something we call proof of ego, okay? And then midlife crisis, oh, also I gotta add a little note in here. I gotta add a little note in here about ego death. I, I really have to discuss that for a little bit. 
Um, but uh, proof of ego. And then midlife crisis is actually proof of subconscious. Um, proof of subconscious. And three-quarter life crisis is actually proof of uh, unconscious. That's three-quarter life crisis. And death, well, death, if you have a meaningful death, which most people would prefer once they, once they like actually accept death, meaningful death is basically, guess what? It's proof of superego. Um, or proof of superego development. So we're going to put in an asterisk in there. This is all about development. It helps if I spell correctly. Um, we're going to put this, you know, this is development here, you know. Development, development. Yeah, okay. So have you guys ever noticed this? Core life crisis, midlife crisis, three quarter life crisis? So this is why, like, in my coaching practice, if I talk to people and it's like, hey, you know, what happened? When does quarter-life crisis actually typically start? What year? Guess what? 40 years. 40 years of age, on average, is when midlife crisis starts. Actually, it's more 38 to 46, basically, in this range, is, is midlife crisis. Three-quarter-life crisis happens about... Maybe uh, it's like it's around uh, retirement, but it's basically 68 to 74 is typically when that happens. And quarter life crisis is about 24 to 28 um, is, is when that happens. But the real magic year, especially in men, is 27. It's about 25 for women when they have quarter life crisis, which is proof of ego. Um, so, so let's actually like walk through what these things actually mean. Okay. So quarter life crisis happens. We'll, we'll use men as an example. So men used to have something called rite of passage and what rite of passage was, uh, because women don't need a, a rite of passage. They really don't. Their, uh, their proof of ego comes in a different way. Now, traditionally speaking, Proof of ego for women, their rite of passage was them having a baby. And usually a woman would have a baby before they were 24, 28 years old, obviously, like typically, because it would usually happen like right after they bled for the first time. And it's like, oh, you're having your period. That means you can have a child now. So we're going to like uh, give you away to and marry you off or we're going to sell you or we're going to have an arranged marriage and get the dowry figured out and all of that for, you know, so you can start popping babies. And so women traditionally ended up having an easier rite of passage because their rite of passage was basically, okay, go get married and start having babies. That was their rite of passage. Congratulations, you know. And uh, you played yourself. No, just kidding. You played yourself. <laughs> hey, I have a puppy, okay? I'm good. Okay, fair I'm enough. I my right. All right. I, I have my rite of passage. I have this puppy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's funny, actually, I was talking to uh, somebody um, I was coaching recently, and uh, his wife is, is 27, and he's like, you know, and he's, he's, he's in his early 30s, and he's like, hey, you know, we should have a baby. 
And she's like, oh, I'm not sure I want to have a baby. It's because, you know, she's an SP and babies, like, uh, the in terms of women, uh, the temperament that has the most postpartum depression are SP types no. because... Because their introvert intuition and child or inferior function is afraid of losing their freedom if they have a child. And they're scared of that. And uh, that's why they, that's why postpartum depression is very common amongst SPs, right? Well, when that happens, you know, it's, it, you know, it's hard to like convince, you know, an SP type to be like, hey, you know, you should probably have a baby. Um, and uh, so it's like, okay, well, well, what do I do? You know, and, you know, it, that's neither here nor there, but the point is, is that she even realized that given her age, she has that pressure, this quarter life crisis that women typically have of like, okay, am I going to have a baby or not? Because it's like, from her point of view, I'm actually going to lose status among my fellow women because I'm not, haven't had a child yet. And that concerns her, right? And that's a very concerning thing. And a lot of women have it. I also know other women who have actually not been able to complete their quarter life crisis because they lost the ability to have a child entirely. And it screwed with them. It screwed with them so much. Uh, like I knew this ENFJ one, that it screwed with them so much, they actually adopted a child uh, because they just couldn't handle it. And that, uh, and having adopted a child, it, it's, it satisfied the female rite of passage, basically. And thus, it's proof of ego for core life crisis. It's a ritual, you know. These are rituals that people follow so I'm going to put this down here. These are rituals um, to make sure that they reach, you know, their their quarter life crisis, their rite of passage is handled. Um, and, it, and it's a huge amount of pressure. With men, there's also similar pressure, but it's different. It's it's a it's it's proof of ego. It's proof of I am capable. It's uh, and uh, in uh, what I, I I teach something called King Warrior Magician Lover, right? Well, reality, quarter-life crisis is when a man reaches king. And king basically means uh, produce more than you consume. In today's, uh, in today's it's 100% self-sufficiency, basically. Um, it helps if I spell again. I'm bad at spelling today, apparently. I, it's probably because I did not have a Starbucks pink drink before my lecture. And uh, I was told not to have one. So... But it was kind of late for me to be having that much caffeine anyway, let's be honest. So, um, by the way, do you have a, an antiviral drink soon? I, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, BD. Uh, so 100% uh, self-sufficiency. And in today's times, that means they have their own job. They have their own car. They have their own home. And they are producing more than they consume. And by producing more than they consume, that means they can take on a family, right? Well, that's quarter-life crisis, right? Uh, that's the rite of passage. That is the true rite of passage for men nowadays, because that is when a man, uh, when a when a man child or a boy is actually accepted by society uh, right now. Uh, is if they have their own job, their own car, their own home, they produce more than they consume, and they are one hundred percent self sufficient. Because like when I when I talk to men, they're like, you know, they, they like I've had a few men like man children hire me to try to help them social engineer women to get into bed with them. And I'm like, great, I have the number one tactic for you to uh, open the world up, you know, because pussy will literally grow on trees for you because it grows on trees for for all men, but not you because you're a boy and because you're a man child. <laughs> so they're like, okay, tell me what the secret is. Great. Do you have a job? No. Do you have a car? 
No. Do you still live with your parents? Yes. I'm like, okay, so tell me, what exactly is attractive about you? Could you explain that to me? Oh, you have muscles? Oh, great. Well, let me tell you something, dude. The, the fat, bald guy down the street who's your age, but for some reason he's lost your hair, his hair already, just freshly, he's, he's, he's like, he's only like, he's 21 years old, but he, for some reason he's already lost his hair and he's actually way overweight compared to you, but he has his own job, his own car, his own home. Yeah, pussy grows on trees for that guy, not for you, sorry, because, you know, you haven't reached king yet. You haven't reached that proof of ego development like this fat bald guy had, you know? And he's like, oh, okay, that's a little different. So instead he focused all of his energy on not on not paying any attention to women whatsoever. And he got his own job, he got a car, and he got his home home. And then he hired me again. He's like, okay, well now what do I do? You know, and I'm like, okay, this is really simple. Just go watch the Ruby uh, conference on uh, dating tips, which was... I think that was March 2020 Ruby conference and he just became a Ruby member and didn't end up buying an actual session with me and he just watched the Ruby conference and last I heard he actually has a girlfriend now and they are planning on getting married. Go him. So that's just, that's fantastic. Awesome. You know, but, uh, so, but yeah, like the rite of passage for men, which men just don't understand, which the parents of boys don't understand. Like if you are a parent, it's like seriously, if you are a parent, it, you need to stop asking your child what they want to be when they grow up. That is the stupidest, dumbest thing. It's actually, in my opinion, it's child abuse to do that to your child. Instead, what you need to be asking your child, your boy, is... What are you going to do to meet your needs when you come of age, when I am no longer meeting your needs? And you tell them, when you're at this age, that's the cutoff. I ain't meeting your needs anymore. That's it. You know, that would have been really nice because I have a family member who is an ENFP and recently decided that he was too entitled to actually, you know, drive with his father uh, for three hours to help his father load up a piece of equipment in his truck that was extremely heavy, uh, this 19-year-old. And this 19-year-old failed all his classes. He sits around playing video games and smoking weed. He thinks he's all that in a bag of chips, super entitled. And he spends all of his time on dating apps, even though he lives with his dad and his stepmother. And, uh, you know... Someone else paid for his card. Someone else is paying for his phone. Someone else is literally paying for everything. And he's about to lose his job. And it's actually really a part-time job where he's not making much money. And he's not even paying rent. And it's like, yeah, you're a total loser. Funnily enough, the whole family kind of jumped on him for it. And we were preparing to publicly shame him for his uh, entitled stupidity until he finally decided, okay, yeah, I should apologize. Do I think his apology was sincere? Absolutely not. I maintain his apology was just a stay of execution, but that's my personal opinion on that, of course. But the bottom line is, is that the pressure for the rite of passage is there. Because why, do we, why is the rite of passage even relevant? Like, why do we even have it? The reason why, the reason why we have a rite of passage is because, you know, men are not accepted in society because a woman is easily accepted in society if they have a child and this is one of the reasons why like divorce court and uh, and cps and child courts uh, child support laws are the way they are because it's protecting the rite of passage 
for women, but there is no such protection of the right of passage for men. And this is a serious issue that happens over and over and over again. It's because all the right of passage would be is like we tip it like for example a great example in the popular culture of a right of passage in the in the movie 300 when leonidas becomes king he was kicked out of the village as a child and he ended up getting into a fight with a fierce animal and killed the animal to prove that he was strong enough because he survived to prove that he was strong enough and then he was considered a man and not a boy when he returned to Sparta, basically, he was considered a man and he was treated like one and respected as a man. Or you can look at uh, another uh, movie, which is cited in King Warrior Magician Lover, known as the Emerald Forest, which I highly recommend everyone watch. A boy who was marooned from his family in the Amazon forest, taken by the natives, raised by the natives. And this boy ends up, you know, having the hots for one of the girls. And then uh, the village elders are like, okay, it's time for you to die. And it scared the boy. And they left the boy out in the middle of the forest, left him for dead, basically. And then he, and the test is to whether or not to see if he could find his, way, his own way back to the village or not. And if he can, he has passed his rite of passage and he is respected as a man. He is 100% uh, no, Marcelino. I mean, like your own apartment, like your own, like your own place. Like it, it, it could be even a studio, as long as it's like your place, you know, et cetera. Uh, so, so based on that, uh, you know, he was respected, this boy was respected as a man and he was allowed then to take on a woman within their village. This is the point of rite of passage. Rite of passage solves quarter life crisis and it is proof of ego development. Why? Because in order for you to pass your rite of passage as a woman or a man, you have to be responsible it's literally personal responsibility folks proof of personal responsibility that is how you solve quarter life crisis okay although it's kind of funny because nowadays the roles of women and men have become very murky and now women are being sold on hey you know you can pass your rite of passage if you behave like a man and do the man's rite of passage and then you're okay you don't necessarily have to have a baby anymore Probably because you have Malthusians out there like Bill Gates trying to depopulate everyone and let's just sell women on this idea of not having children anymore because it conveniences our agenda. You know, hashtag UN Agenda ID 2020, LOL. If you're an SP and really, really don't want to have a baby, you can do whatever you want. Because if you're married to somebody that doesn't mind if you have a child or not, then what does it matter? Oh, okay. Yeah, besides... Why would you want to take away a choice from an SP? That's like unwise. So, because, you know, if an SP woman wants to be a mother, they should be willing to have the choice. But over time, guess what? If you just have faith in your SP wife or your SP woman, who is potentially the mother of your children, she'll eventually turn around because they always do because hashtag instincts. I mean, come on. It's just, you know, pre-programmed epigenetics. It's like literally like in our heads. We can't escape it. But at the end of the day, you know, choices are choices are choices. You know, it's always better to let people have a choice. I'm not here to take away anyone's choice whatsoever. So before anyone claims that I am, like, seriously, like, no, no thanks. Uh, there's a dumpster over there. Uh, you can go get in it. Um, so then we have midlife crisis. Midlife crisis is, so quarter life crisis uh, is what I'm usually hired by men uh, in my coaching sessions to actually handle. Uh, more than anything. 
women actually hire me more for midlife crisis, actually. Very few men hire me for midlife crisis, which is kind of interesting. But I'm mostly hired by women for midlife crisis. And all midlife crisis is is proof of subconscious development. Now, here's where things get a little murky. Sometimes the midlife crisis and the three-quarter life crisis actually switch. Sometimes they switch. And this happens because of cognitive focus. Cognitive focus is when you, be, when you start to favor one of the four sides of your mind over the others. And it's usually, almost always, someone favoring, you know, if you're in a, you, your ego is XYZ type and you're favoring your subconscious, so you're, beha you're behaving like a subconscious flavored version of your ego, or you're favoring your unconscious and you're, you're preferring uh, to behave like a, an unconscious flavored version of your ego, etc. Because I'm an INTJ focused ENTP. That's my flavor, etc. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, my, my rapper name is Sharkesh, by the way. Oh. That's my flavor. It, it, it's 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 Railgun's fault. She got me that that uh, that shark uh, shirt that you folks are very fond of. That's why. Just saying. That's where that came from. Yeah, we did. So when I so when I rap to her in the shower, I'm I'm Sharkesh. You know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but midlife crisis. So it just depends. You know, like. Depending on your cognitive focus, midlife crisis and three-quarter life crisis can change. However, you still are going to have a crisis in these age in these age areas, and it's all because your brain is trying to guarantee that you know your life, your brain, the universe is going to force you as a human being to make sure that you are on the path to enlightenment. You are on the path to personal growth. You are basically, you are on the path to becoming the best INFP you can be. You're on the path to become the best ISTP you can be. You're on the path to become the best ISTJ you can be. Whatever, right? If you want to learn more about that, you guys like seriously need to become a Patreon gold tier member, csjoseph.life forward slash Patreon, and then like get in gold and watch all of season 19. It is crucial. We just finished season 19, 17 episodes of awesome where it literally teaches you how to become the best version of your type. Something ringing out there? Oh, oh she's drying. Oh, apparently the dryer is done drying clothing. Awesome. So anyway, that's basically, uh, you know, where or how these crises end up happening. But the midlife crisis specifically, almost always is, is proof of subconscious development. This is what causes people to divorce all of a sudden in midlife. This is what causes people to quit their jobs or to do a career change in midlife. And it's like, are you really changing your career because you like, really, you're changing your career and you don't, but you're going to go back to school for that? Like, this is midlife crisis. This, this happens all the time. I actually knew an INTJ who's like, oh, I've always been in, in accounting investigations and I, and I always, uh, I was really good at doing my job, but like, honestly, I just don't want to do it. And then she had midlife crisis and she started freaking out. She didn't know what to do. And then uh, she decided like, I'm going to go back to school for data science. And then all of a sudden she's like trying to be all into data science and whatnot, et cetera. That was her midlife crisis. Um, and also she broke up with like her boyfriend of like six years in the process and just completely lit her entire life on fire. It's because the subconscious side of her mind or ESFP subconscious, which is so focused on performance as well as, uh, you know, as, as well as high moral fiber, 
Well, its needs haven't been met yet. She's basically ignored that her entire life for the most part. It's mostly because she's very shadow focused. She's, you know, very ENTP focused, INTJ. And she didn't have the opportunity to develop her subconscious. So life is forcing development upon her, right? Which is, you know, midlife crisis. So, and this is where that side of the mind happens. So, okay, yes, I know that this is a lecture where we're supposed to be talking about children and parenting, but guys, when you're parenting your children, you have to keep these phases of life in mind, okay? Because here's the thing, especially like when you have a firstborn and you're a parent, guess what? Every single day is new territory till the day you die. I don't care if you're 80 years old and your child is 21 years, uh, you know, you're 21 years apart from your child. I don't care. I don't care. Every day is new territory. And you have to be willing in some capacity as a parent to be assisting your child with one of these life stages or life phases. It's really important. So again, folks, the midlife crisis represents proof of subconscious development. It's where all of a sudden, you know, if you're an ENTJ and you're CEO of a company, you just decide to retire at 42 and take up windsurfing and uh, music and living on a beach instead. And you gave up all of your CEOing for that, right? This happens all the time. I Actually, I knew an ENTJ woman who was a major uh, corporate nurse who worked for McKesson uh, and some other groups. And then she broke her back. And then after surviving that surgery, which she would likely, they actually was a 40 plus percent chance that she was going to die on the table during that uh, surgery. She survived the surgery. She regained her ability to walk. But uh, then she ended up like, she became suicidal, which was very sad. And then after that, she ended up running her own tattoo shop. This is a, a corporate nurse who was making $250,000 a year. And she just decided to randomly move to the Midwest when she lived on the East Coast. And then she just took up her tattoo shop. Because that's what, that's what mattered to her. Midlife crisis. This is what happened. She also divorced her husband, abandoned all of her children in the process, and all of that. Now, you know, like, it, it, it happens, you know. But most of her children were grown, though, so you can't really, you can't really, like, judge her, per se. Like, most of them were grown and out of the house. And uh, her relationship with her husband, the way it was, and how that situation, you know, went down, I, I think their divorce kind of was maybe more mutual, and I don't necessarily blame them, so I, I understand. But, but the bottom line is, like, her midlife crisis was fueling that. Well, guess what? Her husband was having a midlife crisis too. And that doesn't help because they're all the same age, you see. And then this is why sometimes, you know, a lot of people give so much crap to people who uh, marry outside of their generation. But this is actually one of the biggest advantages of marrying outside a generation because, like, for example, a, a Gen Xer married to a millennial or a millennial married to a Gen Zer, right? Because those age gaps of at least 10 years actually seriously help people get through these life stages, especially when we are living in such a fatherless society. You know what I'm saying? We live in this huge fatherless society uh, where people are not able to even get past quarter-life crisis with their rite of passage. And now we have all these boys trying to prove their quarter-life 
their proof of ego development with their quarter-life crisis that they end up saddling themselves up with a lot of student loan debt because they think their degree is that rite of passage proof of ego development when the reality situation is it's actually setting them a lot further back from becoming 100% self-sufficient. Wow. And now you guys understand why student loans are not forgivable because society is specifically stacked against men in that way. Or it's actually specifically stacked against everyone that way, but it really negatively impacts men more so than women as a result. Of course, women can gain more scholarships than men can anyway. Oh, yeah. Think about that. You know, uh, it's, it, oh, and did you know that uh, uh, the aides of Congress and congressmen and congresswomen, uh, all of their student loans are, uh, aud- they don't have to pay them back? Did you guys know that? That's like ridiculous to me. Got it. Gotta love that. Um, and then there's the three quarter life crisis, which is proof of unconscious development, and that's basically where a person's wisdom comes from. Again, more of this on their on season nineteen. Please watch season nineteen because we dive deep into the different crises uh, within season nineteen and actually provide real examples and practical application to help you actually get through these different phases of life. Um, can midlife crisis happen in your early thirties? Not necessarily. I mean, it probably can, uh, Helen, but uh, it's usually much later than that uh, because it may be residual of your quarter-life crisis if that rite of passage has not necessarily been adhered to quite yet. And that usually could that be. So, like, for example, let's say there's, like, a 34-, 33-year-old woman. They haven't even had a child yet, and there's a lot of pressure, especially if they're, like, an FIT user, and people, especially in their family, are thinking less of them because they don't have a child there or they don't have a husband yet, for example. That causes an immense amount of pressure, and that pressure is just going to keep going, and it's just going to get worse. And then if the quarter-life crisis hasn't even been solved yet, then the, the midlife crisis is just going to even compound and make it even worse, and then their entire life is going to explode by the time they hit their 40s. And we see this all the time, especially with INJ types and INP types. Introverted intuitive types end up having, like the, like the INXX types, end up having the biggest problems in these areas. Absolutely biggest problems. Um, types that don't seem to have uh, that problem as much um, are basically all of the structure types. They generally don't really have a problem with it. And uh, all of the SJs, for the most part, don't really have a problem with it either. Um, but it's really, uh, it's, it's basically SPs and INs that end up struggling the most and are prone to having that happen to them. So, yes, Sarah's story, very well said. Sometimes even people with fathers are fatherless too. And that happens when your own father hasn't completed his own rite of passage because fathers just don't even know that this is a thing. 100% self-sufficiency needs to be the goal of a son. If you are a father or you're a mother and you're not working towards making them 100% self-sufficient, you're a bad parent. Like, I don't care. You're, you are an actual bad parent. Stop it. Wipe yourself off. You did. You know what I'm saying? Don't do that. So these are the life stages. And uh, we have talked about cognitive focus and how cognitive focus impacts his life stages. These life stages may change as a result. Just remember the final the final crisis, which is death itself, is making sure that your death is meaningful, which is proof of superego development. 
if your death is memorable, if your death means something, uh, like for example, at the end of Avengers Endgame, when Tony Stark, the ENTP, sacrifices his life uh, for the sake of all of reality itself and activating his extroverted sensing demon, he went full on angelic and he used the uh, uh, Infinity Snows uh, to do a snap and it basically saved all of reality and all of those people at the cost of his own life. Well, that was proof of his superego development, and it, and it was no longer a demonic force, but an angelic force, basically, you know, as a result of that. And it was basically him reaching enlightenment, as it were, but death is there. And, you know, oftentimes, folks, in order for one to really reach enlightenment, it is actually culminated with a meaningful death. This is why if you actually decide to buy into the lie of transgenderism and singularity and decide and opt to have immortality via technology, your growth will be stunted and you will never have proof of superego development, which could potentially make you miserable indefinitely while you try to seek death but cannot find it. That's actually Revelation chapter 9. And does that mean that it's predicting people being potentially immortal uh, before the end of the world? That would be pretty scary. You might want to look into that. But the bottom line is, is that when you take death out of the equation, and you're looking at immortality, basically, uh, with this person, you're basically undead. And undead, they can't reproduce, they can't have children. Undead, they've stopped developing. They're basically just frozen in time. And, it, and then the only thing that they can then really do is uh, focus on hedonism. And they become, undead becomes the worst form of hedonists. I mean, look at like vampire diaries. They're all undead, right? They're all vampires and they are all horrible hedonists, right? And then they get angry at other people who get in the way of their hedonism, right? Because that all that all immortality is, undeath is, is literally just a hedonism show, you know? That's the problem. That's all it is, is hedonism, um, which is just, it's just absolutely ridiculous. So when you take, uh, so when you take, uh, you know, the opportunity for proof of super ego development away and not have a meaningful death, you are either extending your life through that faux immortality or you are deciding to make your death not meaningful because you're irresponsible. This is kind of like the guy who is drunk driving and then gets in an accident and then he dies. What a very meaningless death. Well, that guy, he didn't even finish his quarter life crisis. Do you guys see what I'm saying here? This is why as parents, it's absolutely critical that you understand these life phases, these life stages, because when it comes to the four sides of the mind, Every side of the mind needs to have its mental needs met, its physical mental needs met, and it only happens as a result of completing uh, each of these phases. Uh, you will not be a successful human being unless you do. And a lot of people out there just don't understand this. And that's why when you're a parent, your child needs to understand this information needs to under and live their life by it, just like they need to be prepared as potential parents themselves to make sure that your grandchildren are also following this same path. Because if we're not doing that, we're literally going to have generation after generation after generation of man-children, losers, and all the pain and the sin in the world are just going to increase. All the suffering in the world is just going to increase. Why? Why? Because this increases ignorance, right? 
the if if people are failing at these life stages at, at their quarter life crisis midlife crisis three quarter life crisis and ultimately having a meaningless death humanity is not going to improve it's actually going to devolve but it's going to get worse and we're just going to be making the fatherlessness even worse we're just going to be it's 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 just going to turn into a horrible situation it will literally be hell on earth and if you guys read the book the fourth turning it actually talks about this decay uh, this decay of culture, this decay of humanity um, as a result of the fourth turning. And the fourth turning itself is the generational version of each generation represents its own quarter-life crisis or mid-life crisis or three-quarter-life crisis as each generation and how that affects the entire world from an extroverted intuition, uh, collective future standpoint. That's pretty scary. But if you look at the book of the fourth turning and then just bring it to the context of one human being's life, well, that's, that's also very interesting as well. One final point here before I open up the Q&A section. You hear a lot of people talking about ego death. I actually got into an argument with somebody on Facebook about ego death recently. Anyone out there who's preaching ego death, they're full of crap. They don't know what they're talking about. Ego death, the idea of ego death is stupid. But they're basically saying, you know, you're very egotistical if you're like really selfish and don't care about the environment, don't care about this. So you need to succumb to ego death so you can be a better person. No, ego death is a lie. What you need to be focusing on is ego growth. Growth. Guys, passing all the quarter life, midlife, three quarter life and death crises of your lives are all proof of growth. You have to prove your growth. Ego death is an excuse to not grow. Ego death is like becoming the undead, is like becoming immortal, and then as a result, that's a problem. Remember, death is a gift, the gift of a Luvatar. Please read The Silmarillion. It's a fantastic read. It's like basically the Bible for um, Middle Earth, uh, J.R. Tolkien's world within Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. You might want to check that out. Iluvatar created everything and he gave elves immortality, but he gave men uh, uh, death and death is a gift, basically. And this is why death is a gift, because death makes our lives absolutely meaningful. And without death, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, how how can love really exist without at least experiencing death once so that you understand how meaningful everything is so that if you're handed love, if you're handed forgiveness, if you're handed health, if you're handed all these things as a child that you've just been born and you don't have any of the suffering, including all these different life stages and all the and ultimately a meaningful death to go along with it. Well, then you're going to take all that for granted and you're going to become selfish and entitled and definitely a horrible immortal to be around. You see what I'm saying? This is why humanity and the human life is literally our entire life is is built specifically for suffering. We have to suffer so that we gain the appreciation for what we have and don't take life for granted. And this creates wisdom. And once we have all this wisdom, we can share our wisdom with others and potentially other races that come after humanity, especially since humanity is on the verge of creating actual artificial intelligence with real intelligence, especially since my work here with this psychology stuff is going to directly translate into sentient life, sentient artificial intelligence at one point in time. And if humanity is able to create artificial intelligence, as I've talked about on the first episode and second episode and third, fourth, fifth episodes of season 17, if we create artificial intelligence, humanity has all the tools that they need to become immortal at that point. 
and mortality via technology, um, which is really scary because if we take death out there, we lose all the, all the meaning of all of our existence because we, we as a race have a responsibility to be an example to other future races as a result of the wisdom that we get from our suffering so we can confer that wisdom upon them so that they do not have to suffer what we have. And if they want to, if they're tempted to engage in sin nature or the human condition, that propensity that psychologically makes us flawed as human beings, if they want to engage in that sort of behavior, they can experience all of our pain because we'll have all that reference, all, you know, and, and we confer that wisdom upon them so that they don't make the same mistakes we do. But that's also why we as a race are also going to be treated with higher honor than potential other races because we were the ones that went through all of that suffering for everybody else's sake, for example. This is why the purpose of life for humanity is to suffer, but it's suffering for the sake of wisdom and for the sake of love and the sake of forgiveness and the sake of understanding, etc. right? It's all for those things. This is why having a meaningful death of proof of superego development is absolutely critical to how we as human beings live our life. So. Uh, yeah, don't waste your life fearing your death, as Sarah's story says. It's very, um, very well said. So, anyway, folks, that concludes this lecture, uh, season 17, episode 12. Uh, we're going to be moving into the Q&A section now, so um, let's, uh, let's keep going. We got a lot of questions in there, guys. If I did not actually, um, if I did not actually, um, answer your question, please re-ask them. I'll do my best to answer them. Elliot Woodhead says, how do you prepare a daughter for her rite of passage? Um, tell her that she has her freedom of choice, but uh, ultimately, you know, she may say like, oh, I don't want to be a mother. And it's like, yeah, but if you actually, you know, get in a relationship with a man that you absolutely fundamentally respect, you will find that you actually have the inner desire to give him a child. You see what I'm saying? Like that, things can change, right? So you have to tell her, you know, you got to be open to that. So honestly, put her around children and give her the option to be around children and uh, and hang out with children, have fun with children, and and uh, you know, and and show how she can actually positively impact other children. Great example of this actually within my own life. When my wife met my children, uh, like my children absolutely adore her. In fact, like my daughter, like like my wife Railgun is like my daughter's like hero. Like my yeah, daughter is I like, like daughter a lot. yeah, really nice. <laughs> yeah. Like my my daughter Saya, she's like, oh yeah, you know, she's so awesome. She's always wanting to sit behind her in the car and hold her hand and follow her around all the time with her SI inferior loyalty. It's kind of crazy and stalkerish. No, it's not. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I miss her. I miss your kids. Yeah, yeah, but you know. So, you know, and Railgun, you know, being exposed to my children and how they are and how she's been able to give them some seriously good experiences. Like she randomly just like I was filming lectures one day and she just decided to take them out and be like, OK, uh, OK, great. There is a, a, a merry-go-round over there. We're going to go over there. Or, oh, carousel. Carousel. Oh, there we go. Oh, random art project. And then my son's like, I hear kids screaming. There might be fun over there. And then my wife's like correct let's go and then they go you know for example there's a random water park right yeah random water park where water was spitting out of the ground and there it was like sprinklers like crazy it was a lot of fun you know so basically expose your daughters to children expose your daughters to um respectable men 
men in their prime, respectable, uh, and uh, so that they, um, who are already married, for example, so that they have really good examples of married men. And then as a father, for example, be a good example to her as a father and as a husband to her mother as well. That's the ultimate preparation within your own home. So hopefully that answers your question. Um, okay, um, Sonny McAllister asks, you mentioned how to solve quarter-life crisis, but how does one solve the midlife and three-quarter-life crisis? Basically, uh, to solve the midlife crisis, uh, you just have to go through it. You have to allow your subconscious to just take over. The more you fight it, uh, and, and it's both. It's really both uh, for midlife, three-quarter-life crisis. You can't fight it. You know, as my father would say in his Life Rules book, because he wrote a book called uh, Making Sense, and like he, it's even like on. Um, he's he's a published he's a published author, but uh, my dad said he puts his Life Rules in there. I think it's like Life Rule number seven or six, and it goes like this: You can't fight change, uh, except maybe out of a teenager or a vending machine. But yeah, you you really can't fight change. If you try to fight change with your midlife crisis, this is a problem. This is why I tell, like, for example, you know, INTP men who are stuck in horrible marriages because they met some ESFJ woman when they were like 18, 19, and they got married, and they are the only people they've had a sexual relationship before on both sides. They're both SI users. They don't know any different anyway because they have that ignorance because hashtag ignorance is bliss. Oh, let me go barf in a corner over there. Ignorance is hell, folks. The point is, is that when they're in that situation, they don't know any different, and then they end up staying loyal to this abusive ESFJ woman, for example, who doesn't respect them, et cetera, because they're not affiliated enough for them or whatever. And then uh, and then I tell them, hey, you should probably get a divorce. And I go, oh, I can't do that. And then they realize, again, yeah. I'm like, yeah, your your brain is telling you to divorce this woman. You should divorce this woman. You're unhappy, and you're negatively impacting your children. What the hell? So get a divorce and be a good example, right? Which is weird. It's weird for me to <coughs> tell people that in their particular situation, getting a divorce is good. Even though typically my belief system is very anti-divorce. And in general, I am very anti-divorce. I, I am. But sometimes it's necessary because guess what? People's hearts are hard. So then I end up making the recommendation. You probably shouldn't be in a relationship with that person anymore. Don't fight change. That's the best advice I could give for your midlife crisis or your three-quarter life crisis. Do not fight change. Do not. Another way to look at it as well, read King, uh, or actually um, watch my season 13 playlist on the YouTube channel where it talks about King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, or Queen, Mother, Matron, Lover as well. Those are the roles of the archetypes, the mature masculine, the mature feminine. Those archetypes also fit pretty well with life stages. So keep that in mind. Um, so, all right, uh, let's see here. Um, Elliot Woodhead is in here again. Uh, men in Middle Earth are corrupt in power and envy as they are mortal. The elves are blessed with immortality and live angelically and harmoniously and always seem to liberate the world from evil. Yes, they do, but then even they recognize and they will admit that their immortality is also a weak, a weakness. Uh, so could immortality potentially be, a, not potentially be a good thing? Immortality done the right way is a good thing. Remember, guys, uh, do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. The afterlife 
getting to the afterlife in a meaningful way and not an expedient way and living the afterlife in a meaningful way is the goal. It's, I'm not saying immortality is evil. I'm saying immortality before its time is evil. Just like sexual intercourse before its time is evil. Oh, wait a minute. That's the story of the Garden of Eden because the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was sexual intercourse. 3X systematic. That is why I asked if midlife and quarter-life crisis could reverse because I went through quarter-life and got stuck in my sub. It can happen. I'm just showing you how it's supposed to work, typically for most people, but their different crises can switch. Uh, they could definitely switch, move around, depending on your cognitive focus, depending on human nurture. Human nurture can definitely affect it. And be aware of that when you're raising your children. And also recognize that just because you have a human nature and they have a human nature, your nature is your export of your own nature is nurture and you're nurturing other people around you from your nature and they're nurturing you. So there's like this huge nurtural exchange going on externally. The extroverted form of human nature is human nurture. The introverted form of human nurture is human nature. It's a yin and yang equilibrium. Be advised, right? Okay. Jacob Person uh, or Pearson, how would you correct the thinking of a child who's been asked all their life, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, you take full responsibility in front of them, tell them that you were completely wrong, and then you ask them the correct question and then provide limits. I will no longer be meeting your needs on this date, and I will be helping you to become self-sufficient between now and then. You as a parent, it is your responsibility to make sure you confer all the knowledge and information and data and wisdom that your child would need to become self-sufficient before they come of age. That's why my children, hopefully, before they're even 16, already have jobs or the ability to make money on their own and are paying for their own cars and their own insurance by themselves. And by when they turn 18, they're moving out and already have their own place. That's the responsibility of parents. Congratulations. Um, okay. Abby Lynn asks, what happens if a girl is self-sufficient, but she doesn't have a kid? Does she miss out on something besides the kid from not completing the having the kid part of her rite of passage? Well, of course she does. Of course she misses out. Um, now, again, you know, that's the woman's decision at the end of the day. But usually if she is going to unite herself with a man that she absolutely fundamentally respects and this man is willing to sacrifice his life for her, because remember... Do not have sex with a man unless he's willing to die for you. Oh, yeah. like, that is the gold standard of intimate relationships and sexuality. If you are having sex with a man who is not willing to die for you, you are like, you're a bad woman. You're a bad person. You're like, it's, it's wrong. It's, it is wrong. Uh, from like a, a churchy standpoint, it's sinful. That's, that is the standard. That is the standard. Because no greater love, there is no greater love than when a man gives up his life for his beloved. Jesus said that. And that's true. Because that's 100% proof that a man loves a woman if he's willing to die for her. As a result, because if he's willing to do that, and that expectation is on men, this is why women must respect their men. Because it's not good enough for a woman to say, I love you to a man. It is not good enough. Because... Women have this problem where they can love just about any jackass on the street. And men instinctually know this. Which is why it's not enough to say I love you. Men have to be respected. And the definition of respect includes love. So women have to go the extra mile and do more than love for men. 
they have to do more than just love towards men. But what they get out of it is the kind of love that requires their men to sacrifice their lives for them. And if the man is willing to sacrifice his life for his woman, well, then he's committed and you should definitely be having sex. Awesome. Which produces children or, and then because you love, because you respect him so much and you know he loves you that much, maybe you'd all of a sudden be comfortable actually wanting to have a kid with him. Have you thought of that? You know what I'm saying? Awesome. So, yeah, what, go ahead. I don't, I don't, think, <coughs> I don't think a man would be so inclined to think that woman can love just about anybody if the woman doesn't sleep around with anybody, with everybody, you know what I'm saying? That's true. I mean, hoes be hoeing. We gotta watch out. So, that's true. Abby Lynn is back. Uh, what happens if it's time for you to have another uh, life crisis, but you still haven't completed the last one? Then it becomes an absolute firestorm that combine together. I mentioned this earlier in the lecture. It, it you're you're up for some serious serious problems that could lead to uh, all of your relationships potentially destroyed, your entire life turned upside down, you losing your job, like every aspect of your life may be it may be completely up for grabs at that point. So watch out for that. Um, so fair enough. And, uh, Elliot Woodhead put a question mark, but I don't see an additional question with that. Um, let's see, uh, I'm going to scroll up, see if I miss anything else. Um, uh, named my taco as how early could people experience their quarter life crisis? Um, basically as early as 16, actually, in some cases I've seen, um, but it, it really, I've actually seen it. It's really when a person gets to a point where they have to be self-sufficient because they have to emancipate themselves to get away from uh, to get away from uh, abuse, basically, and that can cause their quarter-life crisis to happen like super quick. I would imagine quarter-life crisis used to within our culture actually happen in in the teenage years for most people, but because we've extended everyone's childhood out into people's twenties, it's now happening basically from uh you know 23 to 29 23 24 to 28 in that range uh, typically uh rail guns is 19 so um and uh okay um anything <laughs> any other questions all right. Uh, can you complete your crises earlier in life? Yes, you can. You could absolutely complete your crises early in life. If you're being proactive, and one of the ways that you can be proactive, again, hashtag shameless plug, csjoseph.life forward slash Patreon, gold tier, season 19 lectures. Do what the season 19 lectures ha are, are, are telling you to do. And if you're doing them, you're already actively working on these life phases, these life stages, these different life crises you can actually prevent them from ever occurring as long as you're constantly doing the mental development for your personality type to grow as a human being. Um, got just a couple more minutes here, folks, because uh, we're coming up on time. Actually, we're four minutes past time here, so just a couple more minutes. We'll give it, uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, Elliot Woodhead is, how do you get your partner to come to turns to wait till marriage before having sex? Um, well, uh, you basically... So if you're a man, you tell your woman to her face, be like, I, look, I'm not going to have sex with anyone unless I'm willing to die for them. Because no greater love than when a man gives up his life for his beloved. I need to know for 100% chance that I am willing to die for you because I love you that much. And until I'm coming to that conclusion, 
I'm not interested in having sex with you. And that's just how I am. You know, and if you if you're not okay with that, well, okay, fine. You can go be a hoe somewhere else, but you're not going to be hoeing with me. That's that's basically how I would approach that. As direct as you can make it. Uh, named my taco. Does completing your crises early fast track the next one? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. I, I don't I don't think that's necessarily true. No. Uh, I, I I am personally like I could see my midlife crisis coming. I can see because my ISFJ subconscious is underdeveloped. However, since being married to Railgun, she has done significant work bringing my introverted sensing up to speed with her SE hero and it's been rapid growth so I may actually completely avoid my midlife crisis entirely especially because of her influence in my life and I'm extremely thankful for that yes absolutely so you're becoming an ISFJ yes (laughs) (laughs) all right um cool and uh looks like there are no more questions okay folks so with that uh that concludes uh this episode thank you all for coming to this live lecture folks uh we had we had a lot of people uh on this one uh that's awesome this has been the uh the most uh attended uh, live lecture i hope you guys like the uh the youtube stream link better than the zoom and the audio and the video quality should be a lot better so uh i'm i'm looking forward to that as well but Anyway, folks, if you uh, found this lecture educational, uh, helpful, uh, enlightening, please subscribe to the channel or leave a like uh, while you're at it. Leave a comment for any questions below. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed it. And uh, also, we are launching another YouTube channel on the side, just so you guys know. And it's uh, coming out very soon, uh, hopefully tomorrow. I I have no idea when, but this week. So anyway, folks... uh, Uh, Love you all. Thank you for being awesome patrons. And we're going to keep out there uh, kicking ass, taking names, and uh, changing the world uh, one lecture at a time and uh, one life at a time as each of you are all on the path to enlightenment and personal growth uh, as a result of coming to know all of this. So anyway, folks, uh, with that being said, I'll see you guys tonight.